I'm Cassidy Hall. I am Kevin Johnson. I'm Carl McCollman, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com slash encountering silence. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash encountering silence. To learn how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all-too-noisy world. Today, we are going to be exploring how our relationship with silence can evolve. We're following recent episodes of this podcast in which Kevin and Cassidy and I explored our relationship with silence as children and then our relationship with silence as adolescents. So with our conversation today, we'd like to bring our stories about silence into more or less the present day or the recent past. And as a um, launching point, what I would like to suggest is that the three of us explore how our relationship with silence is continuing to evolve. If there are any ways in which silence is surprising us, any ways in which we have received new insights or new understandings about our relationship with silence. And uh, I know that's kind of a broad prompt, but I'm just going to trust that the conversation will go where the conversation goes. Cassidy, does that spark anything of interest to you that you'd like to speak about? Well, as I've shared in, in previous episodes, in 2012, at the end of the year, I had... Um, quit my job kind of unknowingly to engage on a pilgrimage to the 17 Cistercian um, monasteries of the United States. And I think, you know, as, as I spoke about, I, I spoke more vaguely the last couple times just about my encounters with silence and my experience with silence as an, um, as a teenager. And then, you know, as a child, um, in, in some specific experiences. But what was always so interesting to me about this pilgrimage is that it was silence that was essentially the the prompt and the, um, the, the, the voice of mystery that was kind of beck- beckoning me away from, from my life and, and what I was experiencing at the time. And it was, because it wasn't specifically related necessarily to, um, Trappists or, or Cistercian, you know, monks or nuns, but it was more directly related to the silence and solitude within monastic living. And so I believe that's essentially kind of the voice that was calling me towards that because, it, you know, as you guys know, I'm not Catholic. And so it was very confusing for a lot of people, as you can imagine. So I think my adult experiences with silence have evolved to become more closely intertwined and tied with my personal faith, my personal spirituality, my personal belief system. And I've found that being able to recognize God for me in the silences and the mystery and the unknown 
and the unknowable is is a way that I've been able to really, you know, heed the call of silence and heed what it it is saying, what she is saying, what he is saying, what it is saying. So I'm not sure if that makes sense or. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'd like to um, bring it maybe down to your journey with the movie in pursuit of silence. And I'm curious if you could just, you know, for my benefit, I don't know that I've ever asked you this question, but how, what was the timing between your pilgrimage to the monasteries and then your becoming part of the team that produced In Pursuit of Silence? Did that happen like right after or was there a, uh, a gap there? I'm just curious. So it's really interesting. I was traveling. I was in the middle of traveling to these monasteries and I had just come from uh, New Clairvaux in Northern California and was headed southbound to uh, Santa Rita Abbey in uh, Senoida, Arizona. And on my way down, a, a friend, a mutual friend of director Patrick Shen and mine said, hey, you know, you." Uh, he said to Patrick, hey, you got to meet this girl. She's traveling to monasteries like a crazy woman pursuing silence, <laughs> you know. <Yeah. laughs> you and, were uh, in pursuit of silence. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and, you know, Patrick was in process of, you know, he'd already conceived the idea for the film and he was already pursuing it and was already, you know, essentially planning production trips and, and things like that. And so we met up. I brought some some of the photos I had been doing and um, just shared what I was doing. And it was really bizarre because you guys know me. I am so behind the scenes person. So I mm. I was just, you know, I was not desiring to be a part of the film or be in the film or anything like that. So long story short, we met. It was fine. We kind of kept in touch. Um kind of encouraging each other in our, in our mutual work of silence and, and whatnot. And I would say about a month or two later, I was, my chapters with the, with the monasteries was kind of closing at that time. And I was just getting back into counseling work. Yeah. You know what? No, it was about six months later, I think. Anyway, I was getting back into the field. I was getting back into counseling work and was kind of re-navigating all that and basically Patrick said, Hey, can we talk? And he called me and said, would you have any desire to come work on this film? Wow. And so he purely hired me from based on the content, not on my experience in filmmaking. Right. Because he just trusted that I was so aligned with the subject matter and, um, you know, intimately connected to it that he, you know, trusted that that was, you know, something, uh, I would move cross country for, and sure enough, I did. So, wow. Wow. <laughs> wonderful. What if if you could put it in a sentence or two? What would you say is that vision of your relationship with silence that Patrick saw in you? What do you think he saw? Hmm. You know, I, I certainly can't speak for him, but I would imagine, and I think something we would both say about one another is. Patrick and I both seem to constantly have a willingness to let silence be whatever it is. Nice. And both he and I seem to continually yield to that and, and really talk about it and experience it and even just 
every time just with open hands, with open hands, just letting it be what it is. And and that's why it was so par- paradoxical and so difficult to make a film about silence, right? Because right. similar, not unlike this podcast, um, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's just so interesting to engage with a material that's not even a material. You know, I, I would always say, you know, it's like clothing a bodiless body. It's 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 you can't do it, but we're forever trying, and I think that's why this constantly keeps pointing me back to God because that's another, you know, aspect of my life that's, I've learned that certain certainty always fails me. And Mm. it's in the, it's in the unknowing that I know it's in my extreme amount of doubt where my faith is, you know, it's, it's all of the, the, the tension pieces, the paradox pieces. So yeah. Wow. Yeah. Very well said. Well, Kevin, um, any thoughts in terms of your evolving relationship with silence? What, what would you like to speak about? It's such an interesting question because, you know, I'm not exactly sure how I want to respond. On, on one level, knowing what we've talked about in the past and the things I've said about what my relationship was like with silence as a kid and then later on as a teen struggling to understand all that, what does it look like now at, you know, where I sit and what, what is, what does it mean to, to struggle or to appreciate or understand silence from this perspective is, is hard to clothe in words as Cassidy's just said. And, and, um, I'm moved by, uh, her description, um, so powerfully captures it for me, uh, this idea of letting silence be what it is. And I think, I think that's moving to me because I think she's said what I, uh, and captures what I would want to say uh, and didn't know those were the words I would want to use. It, I guess very similarly I would say something like, Cassidy, silence for me ultimately has always been wrapped up with the question of the divine. As, as I, last time when I was a teen, you know, the, that episode where I spoke about for the first time in public, actually, <laughs> about the weird, strange, uh, whatever it was that happened in church. And, and, and I always say to people all the time that that like basically has guided my life. I've been asking what the hell was that um, ever since then. And it's really kind of guided almost most of the things that I've done. And uh, over time, I ended up going to school for uh, religion, and that became my major in college. Uh, then I thought, well, I might want to, you know, be involved in religion. I might want to be a priest or or something there, and that didn't happen. I ended up getting married, and happily so, with kids, and never doubted that decision at all. But always the question of God coming back, and then so constantly going back and thinking about it. And so what's interesting for me now is, I guess, because I've spent so much time thinking about it and uh, trying to study it and scholarly position, uh, what I, it's a very strange paradox for me because I've been pushed the more scholarly I've gotten and, you know, I've gone got back and gotten a master's, you know, still in the middle of a PhD, uh, needing to write to finish and have that degree done. Um, but even at the highest levels, I, I realize now that this is something so 
that to be more scholarly is to actually let go of a lot of what the scholarship that's done in the academy. That uh, I'm realizing that silence actually is a way of knowing that is beyond uh, what we can do in academic circles, so to speak, where everything's clothed in words and and research agendas. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't necessarily want to critique and say the scholarly path is broken and wrong. But what I do want to say oftentimes is that I think it's incomplete and that silence does need to have a place in scholarly settings, et cetera. And sometimes the academy just doesn't allow for it, even if professors and students may allow for it. It's just the way it's set up. Because as Cassidy says, how do you how do you clothe a, a bodiless body? You know, if how do you can't teach a class on silence? It's paradoxical. You need to have material to talk about, and and you need to be able to discuss things and talk about things. It's it's uh, it's a strange situation. So, I guess for me, my relationship with silence is, as Cassidy says, learning how to let silence be silence, and then that has really meant that I've opened up my hands and let go of the categories of what I think scholarship is, what I think God is, what I think theology is, all those things that I study and and participate in. Uh, I now uh, learning to figure out and I, I some days better than others the how to rest in that what what silence looks like when I rest in that. That's and, beautiful. Thank you. I, you know, and, and as I've been listening to both of you, you know, also just reflecting how I would answer my own question. And certainly I do see myself in a living relationship with silence. And I suppose you could just say, just as easily say a living relationship with God or a living relationship with, with the sacred. But, but it, it is dynamic and it has changed. And, and as you know, Kevin, I, I don't have an academic grounding. My right. my work has been, in terms of my training or my formation, I think both of those words are inadequate in certain ways. Uh, but first with the Shalem Institute, which is an ecumenical and really kind of interfaith, but primarily Christian contemplative organization based in Washington, D.C., is founded by Tilden Edwards and Gerald May was an early important contributor as well. But then in the last 10 years, my relationship with, with the Trappists, not in the kind of global sense that Cassidy has, you know, has had in her journey, but specifically with the, the Trappist monastery here in Georgia, the monastery of the Holy Spirit. And, um, but then I think the third piece of this three-legged stool would just be my own reading. And that is everything from, you know, from sacred literature to um, reading of, you know, the, the tradition, which I'm reading almost uh, completely in translation. So obviously there's some limitations there, but, but you know, even, even in translation, you know, just some tremendous insight. But then also kind of the contemporary conversation about silence. And, and I want to focus on one specific book that has just been very formative for me, and that is Martin Laird's Into the Silent Land, which, um, you know, is, is a book about Christian contemplation. So it is a book about, about a method of prayer. 
but Laird is very clear that that in our efforts to dispose ourselves to contemplation, contemplation ultimately being a gift from God, but it, but in that effort to dispose ourselves to contemplation, we are disposing ourselves to silence, and that it really becomes a very dynamic process of learning to simply be present to all of the ways in which we aren't silent in an effort to move beyond our own interior noise right. and to learn to recognize the silence that is present in the midst of our interior noise. And I think that's been, for me, the big surprise or the big aha moment of the last 10 years, maybe five or 10 years. I, I think I had more of a dualistic notion earlier than that, that there's silence and then there's sound or noise. Right. And, you know, and it's, it's almost like there's black and there's white, you know, there's, there's, there's the printed word and then there's the page on which the ink is printed. Right. But what I've come to recognize is that the words are printed on page just as the space between the ink is the page right it's all the page right and that that there is there is a real presence of silence in the midst of the most ear-splitting noise now hey, hey I may, carl yes uh -huh. can you repeat that line about about the words in the page just slowly so i can really grasp it Okay, I'll I'll see. <laughs> sorry, sorry, but, but it, it was really powerful, and I wanted to hear it. You know, this is this is a time where I would hear something, and I would go back ten seconds to what did he say again? <laughs> well, and and if I say it slightly differently, maybe that'll just shed some more light on it. But but the idea was that I think before I came to the monastery, and before I read Martin Laird and began studying with Brother Elias and some of the other monks, that. My my perception of silence, my understanding of silence was a little bit more dualistic, that there's silence and then there's not silence, you know, whether it's music or noise or sound or whatever. And so the analogy I was using was a printed page. You have the, the blank page, just the piece of paper, and then you print the ink on it. And the ink, of course, forms letters, which in turn form words, which in turn form sentences. And so there's thought, there's syntax, there's meaning. But so there was this idea, I guess, in my perception of silence that that silence isn't in the midst of that meaning. But I've come to recognize that that was a misapprehension. That right. silence is always present. Right. Silence is present in the midst of thought. It's present in the midst of music, in the midst of meaning, in the midst of syntax. Uh, the paper is present. The blank page rests beneath the ink. So the ink is actually embedded into the page. Right. Every word, the words I'm speaking right now, are embedded in silence, and silence is embedded in the words. So coming to little by little learn to recognize that, and I miss it all the time. I am continually distracted. But more and more, you know, by the grace of God, I believe, I, I'm catching glimpses. And this, this, just this recognition that we are always present in this vast, limitless, endless silence, this silence that is both outside of us, but also deep within us. And so that, that, you know, the, what comes to mind is that 
verse in um, in the Acts of the Apostles, you know, in in God, in the divine, in the silence, we live and move and have our being. Right. I don't know if that was what you were trying to hear again, Cassidy, or not, but hopefully it was okay. Right. Yeah, absolutely. No, definitely. And, and it, it makes me think a lot of, you know, we often hear about uh, composers and musicians. Um, and I, the composer we worked with for our film, Alex Liu, just their, how attuned they are to the silences, right? But just as much as our words are the notes, right? Just as much as, like you were just saying that, you know, what you're, what you're saying right now, what I'm saying right now, that it can be seeped in silence, that it can come from the silence. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in the silence. One thing that I often share when I'm leading a retreat is I say that the beauty behind visiting a monastery or the beauty behind going on a retreat is that we place ourselves in external silence. You know, we, we get away from the cell phone and the television and the radio and so forth. We enter into that external silence so that we can learn to notice and be present to our interior silence, which is always there. The question is, are we paying attention? And that's the invitation. That's this whole idea that, that contemplative prayer or centering prayer or something like that disposes us to contemplation is really a gesture of learning to pay attention to what is already there. So, okay, Kevin, sorry. Absolutely. No, I, what I was going to say is that... Uh, what you're describing um, really helps me think even further what I was saying in my response to the question, because I'm realizing that I approached silence from basically wanting to either understand it or or know it in a way that was a, a attempt to control it, and again was kind of dualistic. It was a way of if I could think this through or make sense of it, then I would grasp it and it all becomes clear. It's a very kind of uh, a strong approach when you've been taught, think things through and, oh, you're good at school, you know, go to study it and know it. And there's something about that. But what you're saying is exactly where I'm, I've been heading is there's the sense that uh, I don't necessarily have, I'm having less and less of a scholarly relationship to silence. And that now I feel much more over the last five Ten years, a much more kind of a poetic and artistic approach to silence. I feel a much more profound, like just being in the world and walking with it and being present with it uh, in natural surroundings. And so it, when so it feels strange. It's it's changed my identity. When before, if you asked me, I would have completely identified as a as a teacher and a scholar and a writer, and I would have been really proud to be like I have these degrees and. All that stuff seems to now just just seem to uh, evaporate in importance for me that now what's important 
is actually being present and to, to responding to that call is what you're saying and and to, and it's a much more artistic and uh, creative space that now when people ask me and that's why I, I think I said the very first episode that I'm a recovering academic is that because it's almost that that title doesn't make sense to me as much anymore it's it's as if the how with how dynamic silence is it's it's as it's evolved and grown in your life it's mirrored a dynamic to your own personhood right right um absolutely yeah just how yeah i would love to read something i'm not exactly sure why this poem came up but it's um from uh it's like, Rainer maria rilke yeah um from book of hours by translated by anita barrows and joanna macy and it's a poem that I've always really loved, and it seems to captivate kind of this, a lot of this, these things we're talking about today with the unknown and the unknowable. I'm too alone in the world, yet not alone enough to make each hour holy. I'm too small in the world, yet not small enough to be simply in your presence, like a thing, just as it is. I want to know my own will and to move with it. And I want, in the hushed moments, when the nameless draws near to be among the wise ones or alone. I want to mirror your immensity. I want never to be too weak or too old to bear the heavy lurching image of you. I want to unfold. Let no place in me hold itself closed. For where I am closed, I am false. I want to stay clear in your sight. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, thank you. But just as we were talking about the, you know, how silence is dynamic, how silence is immense, but then also how, you know, all of us are saying also how silence relates to the divine and the holy, you know, and just, but yet the ways, you know, as we're also all saying poetically, how that can be expressed, right? And and just as 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 he does in that poem, right? I love Rilke. One thing that that I really hope that we can continue to explore. I feel like we're really touching on it with this conversation, but that I think that as we look for new ways to speak about silence in this moment in history, this, you know, 21st century, the postmodern era, however you want to, you know, frame it, that I think the intersection between spirituality and aesthetics is really, really critical, you know, and hopefully we're talking about a postmodern aesthetic, but also a postmodern spirituality. And I think that one of the issues facing, certainly facing the Christian community, the Western Christian community, is a recovery of the aesthetic. I think that in many ways, Christianity has, has lost its own aesthetic voice. And there are a number of factors there. Um, it may have to do with a certain kind of aesthetic conservatism that you see, also a certain kind of sentimentality that has come in. I mean, there's a number of issues. That probably is a whole conversation in of itself. Yeah, definitely. But, uh, but I think that, that it sounds like one thing that all three of us share is this recognition that there is this deep kind of intimacy between silence and beauty. Yeah. And that, you know, that that expresses itself in music, it expresses itself in poetry, I think it expresses itself in visual arts, um, in dance, you know, again and again. And, um, And so 
I'm not sure where this is going, but I'm just kind of under, you know, highlighting it, if you will, and and suggesting that I think that's 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 a conversation that bears bears um, further exploration. Yeah, yeah, you know what's interesting is, you know, those times of the day where you feel all razzled and you you know you know you need something to recenter you, and I always have kind of defined very specific ways to do that, but they're all related to to this beauty and silence that I believe you're you're speaking about. For instance, I I know, you know, I need to I need to get to a museum or I need to get outside. I need to get to a church, an empty church preferably. <laughs> um <laughs> but this idea of of the sacred and holy in in beauty and in it, that is not a rich man's reward. You know, I I definitely outdoors is a space of beauty, a space of holiness, a space of silence. Yep. And of course, we're defining, you know, silence in, in this way kind of as a a step aside, a step apart, in my opinion. But but yeah, I you know, sometimes even bookstores, you know, I can just sit in a corner and just have a step apart that is a way to engage with beauty, engage with silence. And, and Carl, with what you were saying with um, asceticism and whatnot, you know, it's it's certainly so many different directions we can go related to American Christianity, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and all sorts of different ways that we've lost touch with that, and that it's been corrupted. And I think that it is a different conversations when when we talk about American Christianity specifically. But that's my opinion. Yeah, it's it's yeah. interesting too. I mean, we're having this conversation on this level, but and I, you know, I just a couple of moments ago was talking about how uh, moving away from scholarship. But what's funny is we're now circling around scholarship of the last fifty years, where in academic circles, especially theological circles, the the aesthetic is huge. Uh, that's really mm-hmm. the push between that and liturgy and spirituality and the theological. I mean, and even. Some of the great thinkers, like if we, uh, like theologian like uh, von Balthasar, Hans von Balthasar, who is a, a Jesuit and uh, a great thinker, a scholar, but his whole focus is on the beauty of God and the glory of God right. and and the recovery of the lit- liturgical. And mm-hmm. I know that the, with you, both of you have had conversations, so I know um, quite well that this is the case, that we have similar friends in common and that are artists who are writers who are poets and there's conferences that you know i've attended there's places you know so there's i mean that all about this very topic itself that the recovery of the arts can really be helpful and and essential and for me what's really interesting is uh, some of the stuff i've been writing recently that i'm hoping that will be a book i i'm really focusing on the idea that theology really has to have in a sense be very poetic and, and not prose-based, but much more poetic, uh, following some of the ancient writers of the early Christian period doing that. And so, I, I, again, I think this is a whole other conversation we could be having, but I, it's interesting that the three of us all talked about something and circle around this area. Well, and I, you know, kind of like what you were saying earlier about maybe the academy is not necessarily broken, but in terms of its relationship with silence, but it's incomplete. I, th- I think that's very, very well said. And I think that um, that I continue 
even though I'm not a scholar and even though I'm not part of the academy, you know, I, I continue to be nurtured, you know, by reading Carl Rahner or by, yeah. um, you know, even just just getting online and finding an article by Bernard McGinn that is very nurturing for me. And, you know, and so I, I appreciate the fact that there is this kind of discourse that that continues to happen in which some of our, our brightest minds continue to reflect on the philosophy of faith or the philosophy of, of you know, the, what is theology, but but God talk, God discourse. Right. But I think, you know, it's it's like Evagrius, the, you know, the desert father who said that the true theologian prays and the true person of prayer is a theologian. I think we could then add, you know, add a third step to that and to say that that the true theologian is an artist or a poet. Right. And so that prayer and poetics and and theology all need one another and all are um, you know, dependent on one another for their fullest expression. And so, you know, silence, I think in that context, prayer might be the the most immediate doorway into the silence. But back to, you know, Cassidy talking about, about the museum or the library or the bookstore, you know, it's just this recognition that, that, that tr- true aesthetics, true art is also a doorway into silence. And I think that the best theology, even though it's language at its best, it's a doorway into silence too. So it's like silence is almost the center around Mm, those three things, art and prayer, theology, you know, and I suppose you could also throw liturgy in there too, although I think liturgy and prayer really are almost of a piece. Right. But that, that, you know, that they get their substance from, now I know this is a very theological conversation here, but they, you know, they get their substance from, from silence and, and, and then they support one another. So at any rate. And and I love that because, you know, this idea that Silence is the host, right? Silence is it hosts the infinite. It hosts the, right. all the goodness, all of the love. It, it's it's the ultimate host and carrier, and the ultimate, um, in my opinion, you know, finger that points to the moon, so to speak, is Buddha. You know, right, right. Would say. What's interesting is, uh, you know, the, the more we talk about this, I've been thinking about um, one of the writers I read. Uh, a French writer, Christian Bobbin, and a lot of his stuff hasn't been translated into English, only some, and I wish I spoke French or read read French better than I do. I mean, I only did it for grad school, and it's very limited. I should practice more and get better at it. But this, there was a translation of a book of his called The Eighth Day, and it was translated by Pauline Matarasso. And there's a translation, and this is this phrase I've been living with this phrase, this this short little phrase here, um, not phrase, short little um, excerpt here for about a month. It haunts me, and it just it reminds me of this conversation here. He says, There were times when a long sword of silence would penetrate my heart. Pulling it out would have brought an immediate hemorrhage. All that was left to me was to keep silent and write sentences like this, where the white rules. Each one was liberating for me at the moment of its coming. I have never written except to resolve a crisis, make my way through a forest, or back to the clear weather under a luring sky. I have never written 
save for you and me, a you and a me to come, not yet present in this world, where there has never yet been anyone at all. Hmm. And, wow. And I've always loved that idea of that there's no one here right now because we are creatures of becoming and to act like we are finished and to act like we're here, we're still coming forth. I think that's the power of what poetry and good writing will will point out for us that, as you said, Carl, the, the invitation, the invitation is we're invited to come forth and, and, and our true, you know, who we truly are and, and not to get caught up, you know, if we're thinking about Martin Laird, not get caught up in the cocktail party of the mind and, uh, and get lost in all the stuff that distracts us and to actually come forth. And so it's interesting to think of a world that we live in a world where no one has ever yet been. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and we're, we're falling or immigrating or voyaging into that world with every heartbeat. Exactly. Call forth each moment, second to second. Yeah. It's beautiful. It, and this kind of brings us right back to where we began, because I, you know, I be, we began this conversation with this idea of, you know, how has our relationship with silence evolved? And I think what what Christian Bobbin is reminding us that the reason our relationship with silence evolves is because we are evolving. Exactly. And so, in many ways, we are evolving Amen. in our re, in our response in our response Amen. to the silence. Well, I think we're about out of time for this conversation, but once again, I want to thank both of you for some very rich food for thought. Now I've added two more books to my Amazon wish list, but <laughs> yeah, I know that list just yeah, grows that's forever. How it works. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It was it was such a joy uh, today. For some reason, the conversation felt very rich from my end, and and to hear your answers, it was it's been such a pleasure. It's always amazing how um, <clears throat> we all go in different but very, very similar directions. And it's very just reassuring to talk with both of you every every week that we talk and, and just know that we're all talking about the same thing, but we don't know how the hell to talk about it. There's just so much to say, you know, <laughs> but, you know, may, may silence always be the host of this conversation ultimately. Right. Also. So. Oh, well said. Very well said. All righty. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversation about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, EncounteringSilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website. Connect with us on social media, on Twitter at Silence Podcast, or on Facebook at Encountering Silence. And please visit www.patreon.com slash EncounteringSilence. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Encountering Silence to become a patron of this podcast. 
Your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is to our social, spiritual, and physical well-being. Thank you.